Um, turn, please. Well, before we turn, please, let's pray. Uh, Father, come to your word and uh, trust you. We trust that the passage we'll read, along with every other jot and tittle in the scripture, is your word to us. God breathed, and for our profitable use that we may grow up and mature in you. And so, Father, we pray that you'd give us good attention to this word today because it's yours and that it would have its work in us, that it would fulfill its purpose in, in us today as your people to bring grace to us. We pray if there are those that have yet to trust in you, that it will bring that grace to them to trust in you. And for those who have trusted in you, that it will mature us Give us assurance, grant wisdom to us, uh, increase our love for you, uh, cause us to walk with you. And this I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Turn please to 2 Corinthians in chapter 10. 2 Corinthians in chapter 10. I want to read just the first six verses. 2 Corinthians in chapter 10, please. Do you know we're in chapter 10? Because last week we were in chapter 9. So now we're in chapter 10. Uh, This is the word of God. I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I'm away. I beg of you that when I'm present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who... Uh, suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Now, these verses, I suspect you've been around the church much during the course of your life. These verses, especially three through five, where Paul says we're not waging war according to the flesh, but the weapons of our warfare are not, you may have memorized it as not carnal, not according to the flesh, not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And then we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Those verses uh, are no doubt familiar to you. I trust you've studied them. Uh, as a Christian, meditated upon them, heard sermons on them. And so here we go. Um, here we go again. Th- these verses, really, though, form, if we understand them rightly, I think, the very heart of Paul's ministry. At least how he goes about it, how he understands what he does and how he does it. And, and by way of example, then, uh, I hope that you see our church in this, that it really does uh, speak very directly to how we do, how we understand our ministry and how we do it around here. Now, the context here is we've gone over so many times, I hate to do it again, but just to, just to recognize that we're learning about, uh, about life in Jesus and 
uh, through this apostle and his relationship with his church. And, and the relationship with this church, as we've mentioned, was a difficult one. They had difficulties with Paul and thus he even with them. Uh, they doubted his apostleship. There were some, as he puts it, against some who suspect us uh, of walking according to the flesh. So there were, there were some who raised issues about whether or not Paul was really uh, a true um, a- apostle. Uh, that's funny to us because we, we recognize him as such. He, he, he was not simply a church planter. He was not simply a pastor, but he was an apostle in the sense that as one sent out in those first days, he was given authority and the Holy Spirit was with him in such a way that he wrote scripture. He wrote that which is true about God that we can, that we can trust. It's a faithful witness. It's true in every way. We use words like infallible. We use words like inerrant. We use expressions like this is the word of the Lord. When we read the scripture, indeed even these letters of this, of this apostle. Now it's interesting, it's ironic a bit, that, that, that Paul begins by saying, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I was away. That, that little expression, I am who, uh, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I'm away, is really Paul quoting them about himself. This is what they said. Verse 10 of this, of this same chapter, um, Paul writes, for they say, you know, they, we all have they in our lives, uh, uh, for they say, there's some that he mentions here in verse 2, but they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. I mean, and so so, so, so they thought, well, you know, when, when Paul comes here, he's kind of a, a lightweight, but when he writes, whoa, he, he really nails us with that. And uh, Paul didn't really accept that criticism at all, in in fact, he's writing them a gentle letter with the hope that he won't have to be harsh or bold when he comes. And so that's the part of the irony here. But but the other part of the irony is, is he says, well, if that's the case, then you're just accusing me of being like Jesus. Because I come in the meekness and, and gentleness of Christ. Jesus said of himself that he was meek and humble in heart, and if we come to him, we can find rest for our souls. The prophets spoke of the meekness of this one who was to come. Even the apostle Peter says that he was meek to the degree that when he was accused, he didn't and reviled. He didn't. He didn't. He didn't defend himself. He didn't revile back, but he trusted his heavenly Father in the midst of all that. So we see the meekness of Jesus. But that weak meekness should never be uh, um, confused with weakness, or that he didn't have authority or boldness, because Jesus could be bold. And was when he spoke of the hypocrisy of the religious leaders when he went into the temple and, and cast out the money changers. We can see his, his directness and his boldness and his con- confrontation, but yet always in this sense of meekness and humility. Paul said, that's how I'm trying to be, uh, how I'm trying to be with, with you. But, but notice what gets to Paul, this accusation, that he walked according, uh, he walked according to the flesh. Now, you know, he kind of turns that, you'll notice. 
And that he says that he does, in fact, walk in the flesh, not according to the flesh, but in the flesh. And then he, and he turns it from walking to waging war. He says, so you say I walk according to the flesh, but rather I walk in the flesh, but I wage war, not walk, but I wage war, not according to the flesh. So, so, so what's up with that? Well, we get it. We, we know what, what, what they mean when they use the expression walk. It's a figurative expression. It doesn't mean literally that that's how Paul puts one foot in front of the other. But it's how he lives or how he conducts his, his life. And they're saying that he conducts his life according to the flesh. That that's what dictates his life. That's what governs his life, this flesh. And Paul turns that and says, well, I live in the flesh. And by that he means... I'm human, uh, you know, because the word flesh in scripture is used in various kinds of ways, one of which is just simply to refer to our bodies and the material world in which we live. And he says, sure, I live in the flesh. We all live in the flesh. Um, I won't get into this. We'll do this later and we'll get into later chapters. But they were a little hyper spiritual. And Paul wanted them to realize, no, 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 they were all, as he put it previously, jars of clay that this outward body is wasting away all the time we carry in us always the death of Jesus. We're dying. And that's what it means to live in this frail earthen vessel, as he might put it. So he says, I live in the flesh, but, but, but I don't wage war according to the flesh. You see, they were saying that he walked according to the flesh, meaning that he wasn't led by the Spirit. And Romans in chapter 8, Paul speaks of such things like... Like this, Romans chapter 8 and verse 4, he speaks of, I could put this up in the middle of, the, of a sentence, he says, we walk not according to the flesh, so they were accusing Paul of doing something which Paul says, no, 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 no Christian does that or should. We walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So the contrast is flesh and spirit here. And the spirit there is Holy Spirit, not just our human spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it doesn't submit to God's law. Indeed, it can't. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who doesn't have the spirit of Christ doesn't belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your immortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. They were saying that Paul lived according to the flesh. That is to say, he, he, he didn't live by the spirit's wisdom, by the spirit's power, by the spirit's uh, direction. They'd accused him previously, you probably don't remember, but you might in chapter 1 and verse 17 of this letter. Uh, they accused Paul essentially of making decisions according to the flesh, which meant according to his own self-interest, according to, to what pleased him as opposed to what pleased God, because he had changed his plans on them. And, uh, and, and they thought that he was just being rather arbitrary with that and kind of willy-nilly back and forth. And, and, he, and, and they said, so you make your plans according to the flesh, according to your own self 
interest, that which pleases you and fits your own ambition. And so he was saying to them, Paul, that's, that's what you're like. You're that guy who, who um, makes decisions, lives his life uh, relying on his own wisdom, relying on his own strength, relying on his own cleverness, relying on his own ingenuity. Uh, that's what you're like. And you have the sense that Paul was offended by that when they said that. That, that cut deeply. So I can't let you keep, keep saying that I live in this body, but, but I don't, oh, he put it, wage war. That's how he understood his ministry. That's how he understood his life. I don't wage war according to the flesh. Implied that there were those in Corinth who did. There were those in Corinth... Those some who had made this accusation against Paul, those some, what Paul would later call false apostles, these one, ones who came in and, and preached in essence differently than Paul, a different gospel. He says, imply they are waging war according to the flesh. Now, I mean, you see, they, they looked at Paul and they said, you're, you're not really a spiritual, a spiritual guy like, like we are. I mean, we're the spiritual ones and you can tell. The way you can tell that we're the spiritual ones, Paul, and you're not, is because we're eloquent in our speech. We have great, we're great orators. You, Paul, not so much. You're just not that impressive when you stand up and talk to people. How can can you at all think that you're going to... Impress anyone. How do you think that you're going to get anyone to believe this when, when you're so unimpressive? And surely, if, if you were really of God, you'd be way more impressive, Paul, than you really are. Look, look, have you ever looked in a mirror? I mean, really? And they, they, they thought they were spiritual because they had all kinds of ecstatic visions and, and experiences that, that they could point to. And they loved to talk about these things. And, and Paul never talked about that kind of thing. In fact, you remember from his first letter when he wrote to the church in Corinth, what we call First Corinthians, that in fact, they spoke in tongues all the time. They had no idea that Paul spoke in tongues more than they did, but he just never did it publicly. It was just not a big deal. It wasn't something for him that, that he advertised. He, he just sort of preached, laid out the truth as, as God had revealed it to him, laid out the truth as the apostles knew it, laid out the truth as, as was true about Jesus. He, he laid it out in a very logical, very consistent fashion. There wasn't anything spectacular about, about him, and even as he, as he preached it, as he, as he, as he talked about it. They, they said, Paul, you know, we're well respected. Nobody opposes us. You get opposed all the time, so much so that people run you out of town and people beat you up and, and people throw stones at you and people put you in prison. Uh, if God was really with you, you, you wouldn't suffer like that as one of his own apostles. We're well respected. We have letters of recommendation that we bring from the place. You don't have any letters at all. You just show up. And act as if people should listen to you. What's that all about? And Paul said, no, 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 no. That's waging war. Being impressive yourself. Relying upon yourself. All that sort of thing. That's according to... I don't, I don't wage war like that. And for Paul, it really was waging war. There was real opposition. There were real casualties, life, eternal life, eternal death, and there were real weapons. 
Paul used this kind of language of war often when he wrote to Timothy, who was a young church planter. He wrote to Timothy about, about, about being a good soldier, as he put it, or fighting the good fight of faith. Even Paul put his own life in that kind of way when he says, I've, I've, I've fought the good fight, run the race, fought the good fight, kept the faith, all of that. He writes to the church in Galatia about this war between the flesh and the spirit, the Holy Spirit who is, 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 is in us. So he, he read, I read earlier in the service about these, the armor of God, this warlike kinds of language. And so, so Paul says, this is, I'm, in my ministry, the way I understand what I'm doing, is I'm, I'm waging war, at least in part. There's, there's, there's this opposition that, that, that stands against it. Jesus, of course, uh, spoke of this opposition. Jesus, of course, faced this opposition. He faced it directly when Satan came to tempt him. He faced it directly when, when, when demons would confront him. Uh, he faced it indirectly when people came against him to crucify him. He, he told his disciples, there'll be opposition. They'll hate you because they hated me. And so, so all this is, is laid out. So this isn't anything new for Paul, new to us. But, but Paul puts it right on the front burner, if you will, when he says, he says, you think I'm walking, just living my life according to the flesh. Not only am I not doing that, but I'm waging war, not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And, and so when he lays that out, uh, he lays it out uh, like this. He says the the weapons that we have are God's weapons. They're powerful because they have God's power. And here's what we're up against. What we're up against are strongholds. Now, you know this probably, um, a stronghold in an ancient city. There were walls around the city, but generally within the city, if it was a prosperous city, prosperous enough to have a stronghold, there was a tower. There was a place that people would go to as last resort. If the walls were penetrated, they went to the tower, and that was to be their their, their last stand, if you will, the, the last place of protection. If the tower, if the stronghold was taken, the city was gone, but, but, but the people would hide and stay there, protected in the stronghold with the hope that uh, they would be protected there and went out. And so Paul said, there's strongholds that we're, we have to take down in people. People's hearts, people's minds. And, and here are the strongholds, as he put it. He says, these strongholds are arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And thus then we need to take captive every thought to obey Christ. So on the one hand, we have, to, we have to take down all these arguments and lofty opinions that are raised against the knowledge of God. On the other hand, we need to uh, take each thought and make it captive to obedience. The obedience to Christ. We're not just destroying, but we're also uh, making these thoughts new thoughts so that they're obedient then to Christ. So that's that's all of this. Now, of course, we, we know this. We know inherently human beings, because of sin, have thoughts and inclinations against God. Um, we see it in the Garden of Eden, of course, with the, the, the very seed of it, where Satan comes and 
introduces this new argument against God, this new lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God by telling Adam and Eve, you're just like God. You can be like him. You don't need him. And then we realize by Genesis 6 that the thoughts, every thought and inclination of the hearts of human beings were evil continuously. So we see that. Um, we, we, we see it even um, as part of the passage we read this morning as our call to worship in Isaiah chapter uh, 55 and uh, verse 6, which was 6 was the end of our call to worship. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. In verse 7, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. And then verse 8, for my thoughts, that is God's, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my Lord, my ways, declares the Lord's. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now there's two reasons why God's thoughts are higher than ours. The first one is, and this will surprise you, he's God, and we're not. So his thoughts and ways will always be higher than ours. Even in glory, we will be captivated by God's wisdom for all eternity. You get the sense that he'll spin stories forever and we'll just sit there and go, wow, I never thought of that. Because uh, he's God, you see, we'll never be God. And so we'll always be fascinated by his wisdom, always. But then secondly, of course, we know that because of sin, uh, our thoughts are not his thoughts lower, if you will. We could put it that way. Then, then his, our minds, because of sin, becomes, becomes futile. Uh, turn uh, quickly, if you're in Isaiah, if you went with me there, but you can turn to Romans then in chapter 1. Another familiar passage. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Uh, we read, uh, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and, un, and, and, uh, and ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes and namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived since ever since the creation of the world uh, in the things that have been made so that they we are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and, in the, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping Things this, this lays it out that, 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 that we, even the truth that we really do have about God from creation, even the sense within, uh, we suppress that truth and, and we replace that truth, so we suppress it, by creating arguments and lofty opinions against the true knowledge of God. That comes natural to sinful people. So Paul says that's what we have to destroy. Somehow we have to have, have a weapon that's able to destroy that. 
in our own thoughts, our own ways, our own cleverness, our own wisdom can't do that. Why? Because we're that. (laughs) We need something more powerful. If we had it within us, we could change ourselves, but we can't. And so we need God and his power to be able to do that. And we see we suppress this truth. Even though we know the truth about God, we've seen it, his power, his presence, uh, we don't honor God as God or give thanks to him. We set up alternative gods and we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We make that which is created to be the ultimate and we shove God aside. And so we need power in order to change people's hearts. Paul emphasizes this uh, again in his first letter to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians in chapter 1. He writes, verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those, but, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart our wisdom, our power isn't sufficient to overcome this in us, this rejection of God. We can't out-argue ourselves. The arguments that we have against God, the opinions that we have against the knowledge of God carry the day in our own hearts and minds. It needs to be something more powerful than that. So God says, it's going to be the word of the cross that destroys these arguments and these lofty opinions. Verse 20, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through its wisdom, through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. You can sort of see the smile on Paul's face as he's writing this. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, But those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. He says, he says, Jews demanded a sign for God. Jesus was a bad sign to them, a crucified Messiah. The sign for them was a powerful Messiah would come and overthrow political realms so that Israel could be established uh, as ruler of the world, if you will. But what they didn't realize is that Rome wasn't the problem. They were. They didn't realize that Rome wasn't the problem. God was. His holiness and their unholiness. And what they needed was an atoning sacrifice. A cross, a crucified Messiah to save them. And the Greeks sought wisdom. They wanted another philosophy, a better philosophy, someone to entertain their minds, someone to give them something to think about so they can adapt it perhaps in the context of their own lives and self-sufficiently save themselves. And so the wisdom of the cross was no wisdom at all for them. Gave them no new philosophy, but it was an act. It was an event. 
It did for them something they couldn't do. Save themselves. They couldn't do it. But the event could. What Jesus did. And for them that was foolishness. We see in the context of the philosophies of the world. The deists came and said, all right, if there is a God and there is a God, he made everything, but he left it to us. So, so we could govern it. So we, so we could, we, we could, we could develop it, if you will. Then the naturalist came and said, let's be honest. That's no God. <laughs> there really is no God. Couldn't be a God like that who would just create and leave. That's not God. So there really isn't God. Everything has a natural explanation. And then, then, uh, Others would come and said, well, if there is a God, since we're the highest thing around here, then it must be us. We are God. And then somebody else came and said, well, since there's so many of us, there can't be any real truth because we all have our own ways. And, and, and truth is really culturally determined. And, and, and so, so really there can be no, no real, honest, real, absolute, real truth here. Thinking ourselves wise, we became fools because we... Destroyed everything we crave. Which is purpose. Which is value. Which is something to deal with the guilt that we really do have and feel. That we might have peace. And that's the way we are. I used to love it when our kids were little and they would... Go into the car. In fact, before there were millions of car seats and straps and buckles. But but the the car not running, not even on. But they would get behind the steering wheel, you know, and they would pretend like they're driving. It's the cutest thing in the world. And that's really cute then because they weren't driving. Uh, And uh, they they just thought, they really thought they were. And uh, if they did that when they were 25, that would be foolish. To get behind a car that wasn't going and pretend like they're really driving and really think they are. And that's how foolish we've become. We're like little ones behind the wheel (laughs) thinking we're driving and we really aren't. And we really can't and we can't see it. Somehow something's got to break through that will cause us to see it. And so Paul says, as long as you're trusting in your own wisdom, in your own strength, in your own cleverness, in your own oratory, in your own rhetoric, as long as you're trusting in your own power, nothing will ever happen. I wage this war with weapons that are powerful, that have divine power. And so what was that? (laughs) It doesn't mention it here per se, but we know what it is. We know that Paul knew his power came from the Holy Spirit working through God's word. You know, when, when Paul lists out all those, all those uh, pieces of armor, uh, as, we, as we note, they're, they're, they could be rather defensive. I mean, you have a, you have a belt and a shield and a, and a breastplate and, and uh, a helmet and shoes uh, and all of that sort of thing. But there's, there's one, really, I would say two, uh, offensive weapons. Uh, you notice if you look in Ephesians and chapter 6 where I read uh, earlier. Paul writes in verse 17, middle of 17, 
and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. And so it's, it's this word of God and prayer. It's this word of God taken up to know the word and to speak it and to pray all of that offensive, uh, to tear down these strongholds, these arguments. And so uh, the, the, the argument of the word of God is, is Jesus, most more particularly the cross. It's the cross of Jesus that, that, that destroys, by its very nature, our pride, our pretensions, our thinking that we're so hot, our thinking that we really are God. Because you see, when we consider the cross of Jesus, it, 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 it destroys not only the pride of the hearer, but also the pride of the speaker, the pride of the sharer. That's why Paul could say, I come to you in meekness and gentleness and humility. Why? Because the cross has destroyed my arguments and my lofty opinions as well. Because I can't stand before you proud and preach the cross at the same time. Why? Because when we look at the cross, we have to ask the question, what happened there? Why did Jesus die? And the answer is, he didn't die for his own sins because he didn't have any. All the accusations against him were false. Even from a human standpoint. But, but still, even, it wasn't his sin that caused him to die. It was ours. Oh. So then the next point is, I deserve what Jesus got. Well, if that's the case, it's really hard to be proud. It's really hard to look at the cross and say, that's the story of my life. I deserved the wrath of God. And, and once I admit to you that the best I can do for my life is to merit hell, you shouldn't be all that impressed with me. Right? Man, how can I... How can I hold anything over you? How can you hold anything over me? How can I say, give you a lofty opinion that I have about the knowledge of God when the cross tells me that and when my primary weapon is this word of that cross? So, so it destroys my pride and all of my lofty speculations and my pretensions and it destroys yours too. Paul said, that's the powerful weapon and so i take up that word of god the gospel and i take it up praying i take up the word of god praying that this word will be powerful by the holy spirit in your life now i read to you uh, from romans in chapter one and and frankly uh, that's a rather pessimistic statement about human beings Especially if you're in ministry. When, when, you know, Paul's job was to go to people, uh, upon whom the wrath of God was being revealed because they were suppressing the truth in all unrighteousness, because even though they knew God, they rejected Him and, and, and they didn't honor Him or give Him thanks, but became futile in their own thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. They claimed to be wise, but were really fools and worshiping that which wasn't God. And so you, you'd want to say to Paul, well, why are you going to them? Uh, here's why. Before he makes that statement, verse 13 of chapter 1, he says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, 
in order that I may reap some harvest among you, that is, there'll be some conversions, reap harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So what gave him any confidence to do that? What gives us confidence to share the gospel with our children? What gives us the confidence to share the gospel with, with our teenagers? What gives the, us the confidence to share the gospel with, with our friends and family members and, and, and anyone else? Well, when we know that they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. What, well, then Paul goes on to say, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek for it's the right, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. He says, there's, there's power. This is a powerful weapon, this word of, in fact, this is the powerful weapon. This is all we have. In fact, Paul had admitted this even to the people in Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians and, and chapter 2 and verse 1, he writes, And when I came to you, brothers, I I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. The gospel isn't wise. He's saying it's it's not my wisdom. I didn't come up with it. This, the wisdom of the cross has destroyed my pride. I can't stand before the cross and claim anything for myself. So I didn't come like that. I didn't come in the flesh, self-reliant. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, we know when Paul said that he knew other things about them, what they like to eat, where they like to go. What their he knew that stuff. That wasn't his point. But he said, he said, really, the most important thing to me, what I talked to you about, what, what, what I emphasized with you was about the cross, Christ and him crucified. I, I, I didn't try to, to, to set you up. I didn't try to warm you up. I didn't come in and tell three jokes just to get your attention. I came and I, I, this is all I cared about. And, 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 and you're right. I wasn't that impressive. I mean, I was done in like five minutes. I'd like Bill. Uh, but I was, you know, there's a, a lot to this message. I mean, I could go on, but, but you know my point. And he said, I, w- I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And, and, you know, you noticed that. You noticed I wasn't very impressive when I came. My mouth was a little sticky and, and I was shaking a bit. I, you're pretty strong people. And, I, and, and here I am. Just, I'm just coming in on you like this. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and of power. So that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. And when they would say to Paul, you aren't that impressive, he would say, I know. And I'm so glad nobody's coming to me and saying, Paul, I believe this because you, you're really impressive. Your speech is so powerful that I was just drawn to you and, and how you put it. If people would say that to Paul, I think he would say, oh, rats, do you really believe? Because I'm not impressive. This isn't my message. I didn't figure this out. I don't have a, a, a great argument here. I'm just laying out that which I received. The Lord Jesus died for our sins according to the scripture. And on the third day he rose. 
That's all I know. And I think Paul was amazed. And he saw the power of that when people believed. He said in the first chapter, verse 17, For Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. How could eloquence, his own wisdom, empty the cross of Christ of its power? Because anytime he would get off message, anytime he would get off message of the cross, it would empty the cross of its power. And so he said, that's all I came to tell you about Christ. About Christ and him crucified. Now we can go on. There's implications of that. Isn't Paul didn't make plans. It isn't Paul didn't think it through. It isn't that Paul didn't prepare before he talked. It isn't any of that. But he submitted his mind and his heart and all that he would say to God and to this gospel of the cross. He changed nothing about it. You've heard us, me, say this before. That the ministry of our church rises and falls on the power of God's word working by his spirit to change people's lives. And if that doesn't work, we're sunk. Because it's all we've got. But it does work. You're evidence of that. (laughs) I'm evidence of that. Others are evidences of that as they come to faith and as they believe. When your children believe, do you pat yourself on the back and say, I was a great dad? If you do, ask your children what brought them to faith. It won't be you. <laughs> right? And, and, and so, no, it wasn't that. It, it was the power of God working by way of his word in their lives. We are part of that? Yeah, we share it. Yeah, we pray. But you know as well as I do that we're utterly helpless unless God moves in their heart to cause them to believe. And our trust is in Him and in Him alone. People say, what if God doesn't work in their hearts? I don't know. But I know that I would rather be trusting God to work in their hearts than lost people and trusting in them to have something in their heart to enable them to believe. So I trust God. My children, with my grandchildren, the children of the church, with everyone here and with everyone throughout the world. And he says, I've given you this weapon. Don't alter it. Don't confuse people by pretending that you are the eloquent one. Don't confuse people by trying to impress them. Don't confuse people by relying upon your own strength when you share it. Don't confuse people by your cleverness or your ingenuity. Take this message and honestly genuinely and lovingly and humbly sharing it with them. Here it is, of course. 
that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread after giving thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. And in the same way, he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, this too he gave to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. The apostle writes that as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. That's it, isn't it? That's the weapon. That's the power of God. Declaring his death until he comes. And so we do that in every way, shape, or form. We do that. We declare that's the ministry of the church. That's the ministry of Christians ultimately to others. That we declare that Christ has come and Christ has lived and Christ has died and Christ has risen and Christ is returning. That's, that's the message. We pray that the Holy Spirit will take that declaration and do in other people what he did in us which is enable us to believe it and to submit every thought that we have to it. Every thought about power, every thought about prestige, every thought about politics, every thought about marriage, every thought about, every thought about children, every thought about parenting, every thought about friendship, every thought about sexuality, every thought about money, every thought about how we use our time, every thought about everything submitted to Christ that we might be in submission to him in joyful obedience so I pray that as we church together and that as other people see us church together that what they see is that we believe in the power of God's word, working by his spirit to change people's lives. What they see is that we lead with the gospel. What they see is that we continue with the gospel. And what they see is that we end with the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And at the end of the day, people believe they'll Give thanks to God, not to us. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would take this bread and this juice and set it apart in such a way that, yes, we know we're in the very presence of Jesus. We always are. But we'd know that particularly now. And that we would be reminded that this is the weapon, this is the truth, that is the life, the death, and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that you would never let us individually or corporately stray from that truth. And that this truth would be our confidence 
as we live and as we wage war. And God, we pray that you would be faithful to show the power of the cross and keep us in the faith and bring others to believe. So now for us on this day as we come, we affirm our faith. We come to receive from you. We come to submit ourselves anew and afresh to you. Every understanding that we have about you, every understanding that we have about life, work in us, we pray. Give faith and strengthen us. Strengthen it. In Jesus' name.